0: Welcome to A Thousand Words, a podcast that paints a picture about an artist's creative process as a lens to focus on the unique perspective of a specific artist, hopefully, drawing insight into inspiration as we brush up on how imagination provides groundwork for artistic exploration. We're excited to continue that journey with our guest today. Sunday Mahaja graduated from Goshen College with a bachelor's in art, owner of Mahaja. Art studio and online gallery. He started off as a painter in college and after graduation turned his focus into metal sculptures. He has multiple certifications in welding, worked on the production line for two years, presently working as a paraprofessional for young adults with special needs at Goshen Community Schools. Sunday has won multiple awards at the Midwest Museum of American Arts in Elkhart, Indiana also awards and other shows. So thank you so much for your time today. really appreciate it. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the uh, the uh, work that you brought in today, the pieces that you
1: brought in? Oh, yeah. I'm happy to be here today. Yeah, um, yeah this piece here is called um, The Gift, Gift from the Dawn. Uh, basically, what that, like as you can see, there's a rooster and there's an image of a, Woman, not just a woman, but a goddess. So the, the image in the middle is called Oya, which is a name for goddess from West Africa, Nigeria. So they have Shongo, which is the god of thunder, and his wife is Oya. Um, why this is relevant is the fact that um, at the time I made this painting was when I was in college. So I went to Goshen College um, I graduated in 2014. Uh, My intention at first was to be a painter. Uh, That was my main focus and my main interest at the time when I was in college was to paint and play basketball with the hopes that I could go play pro afterwards. So come my senior show, it was when, for some reason, um, you know, the whole racial thing was a big deal at the time. Mm. And, you know, when you're from a different country here, there are questions, you say the most <laughs> asked questions <laughs> that they will ask you because the way life is here and somewhere else is obviously different culture and um, whatever your cultural shock will be the way yeah. you describe it. So I hear from a lot of people when they talk about how women are portraying African culture. Growing up in Africa, I don't see it like that. Yeah. So I wanted For this piece, I wanted to emphasize on the role of women based on the perception that people have here. So I chose Oya because in Africa, when they address God, it's always a male and a female. So it was never like the way, you know, like if you're a Christian, most people have the assumption that God is definitely a man based on how he's been described for the most part. And with all the, you know, all the chaos that goes around in that time period. But in West Africa, especially for the Yoruba tribes in Nigeria, and most of the West African tribe in Nigeria will always address God, either with the male identity or the female identity. Now, what is interesting is Shongo, the God of Tunda, stands for strength. So when men will pray, if they want to go conquer a place, Mm -hmm. a town, whatever, they pray to the God of thunder, the male, the masculine God. When this same group of people who pray to the masculine God are looking for fertility with kids or their crops in their farm, they're looking for, you know, anything that has to do with the fruitfulness of their crops or anything like that. They pray to the feminine God. So in other words, the feminine God is like the soft and the nourisher. Uh So (laughs) for me, I had given a talk um, about the God of Thunder, which is also recognized here in the States as a religion, Shango. Uh, They have them around North Carolina and maybe somewhere in um, Atlanta, Georgia as well. And um, it's all traced to Jamaica coming from... West Africa, Nigeria. So I decided to tell that story with this painting, to say, because I had people ask me like, oh yeah, in Africa, you beat your women. Women are like this. Women are only supposed to be housewives. And I was like, no. We've had over time in history, there's been army led by women, all women. They've had them, their amargadons were all women all over. So at the time I was struggling for a way to tell this story of all these, Unknown women to the people that I've met here in a way that I could put it in one painting. Yeah. And then try to explain if anyone asks, why this woman? Why is this one different? What is the significance of this image in this painting? And then why is the rooster? Yes. So, and the part of the woman, she's the dawn that brings gift. So she's holding the big. Calabash, which you could call it a pot or basket or something. She's bringing the gift of life to the world. Um, like over here, you hear people say modern nature. If you hear the word modern nature, you completely give it a feminine identity. Yeah. So <laughs> this will be like a full description of modern nature in my own way. And you see, with all the colors on the side representing the glow and the brightness of the dawn um, of daylight. And growing up, when we travel to the village, the cock will crow in the morning. Yeah. That's to tell you it's 4 a.m. it's time to get off <laughs> yeah. to the bed and go. So, yeah. so when I use the word, the gift of the dawn, the, the rooster represents daylight. Daylight can represent happiness for, you know, how they say, dark and light, you know. So that's, that's all the component that I try to put together in this painting. And if you see like, it's like a splash. Yeah, I. it's one that I did in a long time That When it was finished, you know, like most painters will struggle with the fact that they don't know when a painting is finished. Yeah. But this particular one, when it was finished, I could look at it and say, I think it's finished. <laughs> you know, yeah. so I had that satisfaction. Maybe in one word, that's um, how I would put that. I don't know if that makes a lot of sense to you or not, but. No, that makes perfect sense, that yeah. makes perfect sense. The
0: thing that really grabs me about this uh, this painting and the story behind the painting is that what you're talking about is, you know, that at the time there was uh, a lot of racial injustice. There's a lot of misconceptions of how women are treated um, in Africa, especially in West, uh, West, West Africa. Africa. Yeah. Yeah, so what role do you think an artist plays in society?
1: Well, an artist play a role of telling a story that will go from generation to generation because um, in most society, you don't expect everyone to know how to read and write. And some cultures have tweaked whatever the original language is or the original writing. Now, the one thing you cannot take away is you can't take away a carving of a stone or a wood carving or a painting on the wall, like the pictogram on the wall. If anyone sees a pictogram, you know that's a moose from the Native American, or you see like a pictogram of a child that just put some paint in their hand and stamp it on the wall. <laughs> Once you see that, you say that's a handprint. It don't matter what civilization, if the aliens come, they could still tell that's a handprint, <laughs> you know? So you can never erase the story if it has to do with art and artist. But you can write a book and tell a book, and no one knows. Some people will remember the story, but over time, if they retell the story so many times, they might miss some things mm-hmm. or add some things and water it down over time. But if a uh, sculpture is being cast in the stone, except you go there and physically destroy it. Say like the pyramids of Giza, for example. It's been there like that for a long time, and it's gonna continue to be there for a long time. You cannot change that. You can change the story around it, but you cannot change the actual image when people see it physically. They know what it is and, you know. So I think that's the the role that art in the society, going back to your question, is they bring an image to life and make it stay in life the way they want it to be.
0: When you bring an image to life, when you uh, bring a a story to life through that image, what is that um, creativity allow you to do uh, in the lar- larger scheme of things?
1: So the freedom that I have as an artist is I could retell a story in my own way. I could look at it or listen to someone's story, your story, my story, and say, I wanna tell this story my own way. How is anyone gonna know from the image that they see, from the representation that I put in canvas or metal and say, this is how I want to I want to tell it. So over the years, one of the things that I've done when I started working with metal is I take a photograph. I take an image that was photographed either by some artists a long time ago. I think one common one that I will tell you is by um, Joseph um, Rosenthal, the famous photograph of the U.S. Marine on Mount Hiroshima. So I did my own version of that with the metal. So I took, I took that from a photograph. So this is a story that has been told by someone famous many years ago, the story that still lives with us in the society now. And I told it my own way. I use metal to represent those people. And the one thing that I tweak is in that photo, it's easy for you to look at that photograph and say, oh, the Marines, there's this assumption that it's all men. But then I grew up with the saying that behind every great man, there's a woman. So when I remake that in my own way, the way I tweaked it is, instead of you looking at these abstract soldiers and just assuming that they're men who go to war, I put a woman behind holding the string to the flag. So that way to say, behind every great man, there's a woman. Because you and I, we agree that in that time period, the great things that women did were not so much mentioned. Not that it wasn't mentioned at all, it wasn't given the light and it mm-hmm. wasn't so much like amplified. So as an artist, I have the freedom to tell, to retell that story in my own way. And make you think and be like, wait, why is that one have a long hair? it's like, well, I'm just trying to tell you that at that time there were women that were doing equal, great things than men, but they didn't mention it. So I chose to throw that in there, yeah. Part of your imagination
0: and uh, being able to put that into um, sculptures and into painting is uh, knowing the process and knowing the technique. Uh, from Goshen College to working on the line, what are some of the th- processes and techniques that you learned? What are the ones that you've uh, been able to master in welding and painting?
1: So when I started off painting, um, I would just paint with brush. And as a college student, I I played basketball as well. And I had a lot of work. So I'm not saying that in a way to say most colleges don't give you a lot of work. But my ideology coming to college to study art, I was thinking at the time that I'm only going to do art related stuff. So when I came to college, I found out I need to take Bible classes. I need to take science classes, math classes, and everything hit me at at once and overwhelmed me a little bit. So the painting that I was really hoping to make my main focus was no longer, not that it wasn't my main focus, it was my main focus, but I didn't think I have enough time to put into it as much because before you get before you wait for the paint to dry it's time to go for basketball practice yeah. and at the time I had to work in campus to pay my bill because I live off campus so my time was like no time basically so every <laughs> little time that I have on the painting I just try to do the best of it until one day my professor um Randy Horse taught us a technique called the impasto technique that's the technique that um What's this guy now? Van Gogh. Mm -hmm. That's the technique he uses. Van Gogh is one of the famous ones that uses that technique. Basically, you're using a palette knife instead of a brush. So the the one thing that I found really intriguing that I hold on to was the fact that you could paint while the paint is still wet. So when I found that out, it was like the magic box opened (laughs) right in front of me. So the one thing I was doing, which I'm not sure my professor will be happy if he has this, is I take a hairdryer on my left hand and I take a palette knife on my right hand while I just scoop the paint. And sometimes I'll mix the paint on the canvas that I'm painting on (laughs) instead of on the palette. Because all I'm doing is smearing the paint and following whatever pattern or inspiration that I have for it. So I don't have to wait for it to get dry. I just slap it on while it's still wet and the different variation of colors that I was getting was getting me more excited and it was just like fun. And at the same time I had this dryer that I'm blow drying <laughs> the painting while <laughs> it's still wet and I'm going at it. So I really loved the Impasto technique. When I got hold of that, I stuck with it. I no longer want to do the tiny details with brushes and stuff now. I respect people who have that patience, but due to the, my time Restraint at the time. Yeah. This was what was good for me. The only disadvantage with that, in my case, was the fact that they expect you to show a painting at twenty percent, forty percent, sixty or seventy percent, then eighty percent. But because I've I had all these things going on, that I'm trying to get turned in before the due date. Yeah, I go from twenty percent to eighty percent, or from twenty <laughs> yeah. percent to ninety percent, and the professors didn't like that because I'm not going base with the structure that has been drawn for me. Yeah. So I'm just, but in my mind at the time, I'm like, if I could get it done today, why not? Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah. and get it out of the way and move on to the next thing. So in some cases, I score less Mac because I skip that process that they want me to follow. And uh, my professor, you hear him say, Well, here's what I want you guys to do. Just to be clear, I don't want you to come over here like that magician who had a 20% painting today and tomorrow. is all over to a 90%, which we still joke about that if he sees if I run into him. So, yeah, that's how I came about that whole idea of doing my stuff like that. Now, the production line, too, helped me because I started. Welding through my professor, who happened to be my mentor now, John Mishler. He's known around this area for his big, nice-looking sculptures. Um, Anyways, he taught me how to weld. He showed me basic welding without going into too many details, which he didn't have to. So he showed me, and when I started making stuff, I started selling stuff. I started getting all these questions. How is this going to weather if it's outside? And the one time I accidentally pushed one of my sculptures, when it fell, it broke apart from where I would welded it. Yeah. And I looked at it, I was like, no, this is not a professional job. So right after college that I decided I wanted to go into sculpting more, I went and took a welding class at Ivy Tech and also the Career Center with Vincent Vincent University through a factory down in Goshen, ended up getting a certification. Over there, we learned about all the bits and pieces of everything, like the gas, whatever reaction you're getting and all that stuff. And after getting the certification, they threw us to work online as a production. So it helped my work because I can now work industrial style. Yeah. And I can also bring my industrial skills into my art, to perfect my art. So now I could tell you, oh yeah, this is um, mild steel or this is stainless steel, it could be outside. You don't have to worry about X, Y, Z or how it's gonna, you know, weather. So that's how moving from painting into a metal sculptor and also a professional welder has helped my craft. How,
0: how is it so important? How is it helpful to not only
1: have the tools, but know the materials? How is it helpful? Yeah. Um, it is really helpful because you are exchanging product with money. As an artist, you want everything that exchange hand and interaction with people to live with them long. Yeah. If you pay $10 for a shirt, depending on what your pocket capacity is, if that shirt starts to run by tomorrow, you might not care because you only pay $10. But for someone who have saved $10, which is slightly different with you buying something that is handmade. If it's handmade, you didn't just buy a art, but you also bought that person's last name, depending on what name they put on their work. And you also bought a story that you're gonna also be able to tell at some point if you're being asked. So just like anything you're buying, you want to give the best of the product. You want both sides to be happy. So whatever work you're doing and you're selling, you want to give your best because it's going to speak for you. It's going to tell who you are. Say, for example, you buy a shirt and you're like, oh yeah, it's from Woman. You know, the price might not matter, but the fact that it's this name brand makes it either exciting, you know, it's like, oh, where did you buy this thing? This is from Mahaja Art. Uh oh, yeah. Depending on how big the name is, adds value to it. So that is really, really important. You know, I'm I'm not just selling you this, but he's selling you the art he made with a story behind it or it's a handmade product. And of course if you buy from me, you're also supporting the local <laughs> yeah. art, you know, and the local business. Yeah.
0: You uh when you were at Goshen College, you were also playing basketball. What are some of the traits you learned in basketball? Uh, that made you more of a disciplined artist?
1: Um, I think one of the traits that I learned from basketball that also helped my art was, so here's one thing that's common with any team sports. You always have ups and downs, which this can play to anything in life. But playing team sports with a group of guys, you always have that fall in and fall out amongst players. Mm-hmm. So sometimes the coach would not know what is going on with the players. (laughs) And players, we have differences among themselves that they don't like and they don't address it nicely or in the right way. You know, you are aggravated. You can say things you don't mean, which will apply to anything in life. In my case, I've always had guys who don't get along with the coaches or guys who don't get along amongst themselves. So what I took upon myself is if this is the team that I'm on, This is one thing I could contribute and try to encourage everyone to get along. So that way, it made me more talkative and it made me more patient when I'm talking to people. So when I started making art, it came for me naturally to be able to talk about my art based on the interaction that I was having with people. And if I want to translate a conflict in my work, There's a way I will put it that it will make sense. Like I could take an image that represents something more negative to make it a more positive thing based on how I talk about it. Because, you know, yeah, you're upset. But I want to be able to diffuse the anger so I can able to bring this other guy together. So that way, it also helps me interact with people depending on what they see and how they approach me when they see my work. Now, do you see
0: yourself uh, on a team? What What is that
1: team? Um, I'm a family man now, so yeah. I'm a team player in my family, and I also have family outside my own family that I still stay in touch with. And what has made me grow is the people around me, my community. So I'm a piece of the puzzle. So yeah. that's the team that I'm on. And I'm a one-man show, but not so much of a one-man show. Because if I need help to load my big sculptures, for example, I'll call, hey, Zenton, one of my buddies, or hey Victor, come come around. They will leave whatever they're doing because they respect that team spirit and that family spirit. They leave whatever they're doing and can't help. And I could go down the street and ask one of my neighbors. So, I think that makes me feel like I'm still a part of a team, yeah. not so much of a small team, but a bigger team.
0: And you said uh, earlier that uh, behind every great man is, is a woman. How is your wife helping support you? Uh, what do you enjoy and appreciate about her?
1: My wife supports me in many ways with my work. She's my number one critique. Um, one thing that I learned early on when I started doing art, I've always thought about people who will not buy art. And one thing that I notice is the wife of an artist would not buy art, except it's a good art. Hmm. So one of my main focus earlier on is if I could get my art professors, significant orders to buy my art, oh. that will show me that I'm on the right track. Yeah. Say for example, you're a painter and your wife likes my painting. That's a great deal for me than someone who is not related to a painter. If I know that your brother, your sister, or your family, someone you're close to is a painter, and they really showed interest in my painting or give me good feedback. Now, the buying doesn't have to be buying as in giving money, but they give me good feedback. Yeah, And I know they're coming from a place of art. I pay attention to those a lot because that will help me know that I'm on the right track. Early on, I sold some of my sculptures, a lot of my sculptures. One of my best patrons was one of my professor's wife who happened to be a sculptor. From the day she bought, the first sculpture she bought from me, that was the day I had the light to say, this is what I should be doing. Because in my mind at the time, these are the hardest people to convince. My very very first big sculpture was sold to a professor's wife who he's also an artist. So when that happened, I was like, all right, I'm in the right track now. That's amazing. Uh, so I always think
0: about it with the uh, University of Notre Dame. They have uh, their architecture school that they're building right now, and I was like, whoever has to design that building has the hardest task in the world because everybody looks at that building. People go into the law school; they'll never really look at the architecture because they're like, they're thinking about law. Right. But everyone going into an architecture building is thinking about architecture, and so they're going to be like, I don't think that street. I don't think that uh, you know that. Uh, arch looks good I don't think that looks good so you have to convince everyone not just an architect now but an architect in the future that you're still worthwhile to make that building so then as an artist you're trying to influence other artists because that's your main critic is that is that kind of how you say
1: it yeah so my wife play a huge role in the sense that she can sincerely tell me what she feels about my work. Yeah. Not that I will agree with what she says every time, (laughs) but 99.9 times I would think about what she has Mm -hmm. said. Because I feel like we have the relationship that she could say, oh, that's all a mess. And I could choose to take it or not. But I would know in my heart that this is a good critique coming from a good place. You know, Because she look at it and she'd be like, well, nah, maybe you should do it like this. So that that's also good to have. But if you have everyone who thinks they should just say yes to everything that you're Mm -hmm. doing, not to punch or deflate you, I don't think you will go as far. Um, Art from learning art from a little kid, you always know that critique. In fact, one of the earliest things that I can remember that my high school professor said to me is no matter how pretty your art is, there's always an error that's part of the art. So he said, when you look at the art, don't focus on the beauty first. Focus on what they didn't do right or what you would have done differently. Mm -hmm. So when I hear people speak, which critique is part of the process in in, an advanced education of art, probably is still is with, um, you know, upcoming artists too. They will critique your work. You know, I've been in places where everyone comes and says something positive about the work. In my mind, I'm not super convinced, but I'm playing with the flow so I don't look like the main person, but I always want to speak my mind. Yeah. And then not too long, someone said, I know you will be sincere. What do you really think about this? So critique is always part of the process. Closer people to you that could critique you, the better for you, for the artist. Yeah. How hard is
0: it? I mean, when you are uh, creating something, you're putting out a piece of yourself. You're putting yourself on the edge. You're vulnerable. How difficult it is? Is it sometimes to take criticism?
1: It's hard, but for me, it's not super hard because um, I grew up. I grew up in a culture where. At least, I wouldn't just say it's a culture, but amongst my very close friends, we have a culture of people saying negative things when they meant positive. Ah. Say, for example, this is common with my friends. When I put on a shirt or pants that look nice. Oh, these pants look nice, but you look like a cute lizard. (laughs) You know, they always would not want to just say it's nice all the way so you don't feel like two heads swollen. They'll always put something negative. So a lot of the times, you know they meant good, so you have to take the negative stuff with a good (laughs) approach, with a pinch of salt. So a lot of the times when people that you don't know say negative things to you, it wouldn't impact you as much because you're used to it. Yeah. So when it became time for critique, I'm always like, yeah, that's their opinion. They're going to say what they think. The thing is, am I satisfied with what I'm putting out oh, or not? Yeah. You know? So that helped me. But I've also seen artists that the minute you critique their work, they cannot cap- capitalize on the critics and do it better or change it or take it like that. They, they read too much into it and be like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He's never going to be pleased with whatever I'm doing, you know, and... You know, you have to be motivated to be able to do good art. So if you're not motivated, then you can't produce good art, in my own opinion. And then what keeps you motivated? Everyday life. <laughs> I've always described myself as a storyteller. So I'm either seeking for more story or I'm telling my story in my work. So as long as I'm meeting people, I'm meeting new friends like you, there are stuff you share to me. That would trigger something that I've heard before or something that it will give me an idea. Mm-hmm. So everyone that I speak with tells me something that I could put into my work. Oh yeah. Like this sculpture, for example, um. Oh, could of, you describe the sculpture
0: <laughs> first too? Yeah.
1: One of my co-co-worker, um, Roxanne, wanted to buy her niece uh, a gift. And she said to me, I want you to make my niece a sculpture." And I was like, okay, what would you like? I could make anything. And I say that to put myself out there so I could hold myself accountable if I could not. <laughs> so I say I could make anything. And I was like, what does she like? And she said, oh, she skis. I, have you made a ski person before? I said, no, I've thought about it, but I've never made one. Cause you know, she said, okay, let's make a ski person. I was like, okay. I said, are you sure you can make a ski person? I said, you just leave it to me. (laughs) I went after a week. I came out with a photograph of that. I looked up different poles of skiers and I came up with that with the hair and stuff. And she was really pleased. So just talking to her gave me an idea that became a commission and we made someone happy.
0: (laughs) That's amazing, nice. So yeah, so you're taking in as much as you're putting out. Yes. What, What has been some of your other inspirations?
1: So early on, I started making birds. And the reason why I started making birds was the fact that I was sitting and I was thinking about, every time you go on the news, they're talking about immigration. Immigration, migrants, and refugees, people are constantly moving around. And looking back to even as going as far back as going back to the Bible, Jesus is an immigrant. You know, so I was like, this whole immigration, migration thing is not going away. Yeah. And the one thing that was coming into mind at the time was: what are the most free things?
0: Hmm. Yeah.
1: And I started thinking about animals and I was thinking of birds. I was like, they roam the sky freely. At least that's what I think. I don't know if they have some kind of traffic control up there, but I (laughs) feel like the migratory birds migrate without any borders. So I was like, how do I tell the story of migration as an immigrant myself? Yeah. Through my art. So I started making birds because the story I'm trying to tell is the earth is big enough for everyone to be free. You know, we could take away the borders and be more happier. Yeah. But, you know, that will be a dream maybe for another lifetime. So I started making birds. And one of the first birds that was my focus was on sandhill cranes. Because you have sandhill cranes going from Canada to Nebraska, some coming all the way from Bosnia and Europe to Nebraska and all, all over the place, some part of Michigan and all that stuff. So people starts to tag them That way they could track how far they've been flying across the Atlantic Ocean or whatever Mm -hmm. ocean to go over. So I made birds. And the first one that I made, a guy saw it and was like, oh, have you thought of this? So I was like, well, maybe I should make a rooster in connection to what I have in my painting. I made a rooster, posted it on Facebook. Um, A guy that worked at the college saw it. He's into ducks. He had a bunch of ducks at home and said, he responded to the, he said, oh, this is a nice sculpture, but can you make a duck? Yeah. And in my mind, I'm like, can you means make a duck? I say, yes, I'll make a duck if you pay for it. He said, I'll make, make one. I was like, okay, good. I made a duck. And other people said, oh, this is really nice. Have you thought of making a uh, blue heron? Then it just goes from there. And you know, if I'm like, oh yeah, I've been making birds. Let me think of making this kind of bird and this and then more ideas coming. Oh, what beautiful bird am I thinking of today? maybe turkey, no, peacock, let's make a peacock. You know, so that's how it just goes and goes and goes. Always, there's always ideas as long as I'm ready to work.
0: (laughs) How much of your process is adapting to uh,
1: these ideas that come to you? Oh, most of it, Uh, most, most of my project, if I'm just doing stuff, I try to make things that I'm happy with so people can see it and say, I want something like that. And also, I like when people give me ideas and say, yes, I've always thought that I could do anything you ask me to. And I wanted to hold myself accountable when I say that. So I've done a lot of complex stuff because when I started making my art, I didn't just want to make metal sculpture, just for making metal sculpture sick. I thought of functionality. I want to make something functional. That's how I got into it. And then the reality is not everyone wants a functional art. (laughs) I want to make stuff for the beauty of it. I want to make stuff that have humor. So when you see it, you laugh, you know? So I was mostly focused on what reaction I would get from people. Yeah. Will I get the wow or will I get the giggles? Or would I get like, how did he come about that? What is this guy thinking? Mm-hmm. You know, so I always like to listen to what people say about my work. I think that's the big thing for me. So I was mostly focused on the reaction that I would get from people looking at my work. And and then of course, the the bills that <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that I'll pay after that, yeah. When you uh
0: saw other classmates at Goshen College, or when you see other artists at um, you know these art fairs, what do you think limits opportunity for a lot of
1: up-and-coming artists? Um, that's a really big one. One of the things that I would say limit opportunity for a lot of up-and-coming artists is one, they need to hear from someone, they need that courage. So what I try to do is like when I visit the college to see my mentor, I try to talk to the art student because representation is everything. When when you have someone that either look like you or is doing similar thing that you're doing that could give you words of encouragement, it will blow you out of the water. So I know how strong that is. So I try to make sure when I see people that when they talk about their work, I could tell if they're proud or not. So when I, oh, hi, what is your process? Or, oh, what is this here? And when they tell me, if my intuition said, you gotta push this person, I'll say to them, hey, look, you're on the right track. Try to do this and do that. For them to hear it from another artist, gives them a boost. Oh, he thinks that. Cause some of them look at you and be like, oh, he's a better sculptor. I'm like, no, you are doing something different. Keep it up. Yeah, <laughs> you know, so I always try to make sure I speak how I feel about people's work, mm-hmm. um, regardless if you there's there's some professional artists that their line is different. I can only say, oh yeah, I like it. Have you thought of this? I'm not gonna be, but if I see people who say, what do you think about my work? Yeah, I want to be sincere and I want to tell them if I'm saying something that I feel like would deflect them, I'll tell them this. This should be something that should motivate you. Yeah not something that should give you a drawback. When you're th- talking
0: about representation, what are some artists that you think you could look at as kind of mentors and be like, this represents me, I, that this helps me um, progress?
1: Um, this, yeah, Uh. there's this the one, the one number one artist that I will always look up as a mentor is John Mishler because he lived in Goshen, Indiana, but his work has gone all over. And if I want to look past him and look to other cities, I will look as, um, what's his name now? Richard Hunt in Chicago. He, if you go around the What's that place? We had a train stop, Millennium Center. Yeah. used to have a big sculpture there. One, when I realized he was a person of color, that I was like, oh yeah, there's someone who's doing stuff like this. That was like representation for me. John is my professor that I see and he encourages me and tells me, you know, and I see that, oh, someone is actually doing this thing. Yeah. Because when you tell a lot of people that, oh yeah, I'm going to college for art, one of the questions they ask you is, what are you gonna do with art? Because there's that notion that you can't really earn a living off of art. So when I was in college, this was something that I held on to because people were always like, what are you gonna do with art? Mm -hmm. But in my mind, I'm like, is someone who's gonna be a nurse just go build a hospital? No, they're gonna go work in a hospital. But where's the studio for an artist? I could create one. But how am I going to do it? I have to figure out other ways to make money, (laughs) to make my (laughs) own thing. So it was always something that I held on to, to be like, okay, they're going to ask me now, what am I going to do? But over time, I was like, if I do enough work and my name is out there enough, no one's going to be asking or won't be seeing it. Because mind you, every representation of anything that you see came from art. Like the guitar, for example. It was never something you would look and say, this is a piece of art. It's just a piece of instrument right now. But if you look deeper, this is art itself. (laughs) You know, like, um, I'll take like all the historic people. They photograph them. That's art. That's Mm -hmm. how you remember these things. You know, they do cast them in stone and in all these things. So they stay there. We remember them generations to come, you know. How is... Why is
0: art so fundamental in human nature?
1: Hmm. I think the reason art is fundamental is it's there you can see. If you don't recognize it, someone will tell you what it is. So there's, it's nothing that you could say. It's not visible. If the blind cannot see it, someone would tell them what everyone is booing or whooing about. <laughs> so. The one word I will use is, is art is recognizable. You know, a painting is recognizable. A sculpture is recognizable. Any form of art is recognizable. Music is recognizable. The sound of the drum is recognizable. So I think that will be the big word for me. i will say art is recognizable.
0: When you're, um, you, you said in high school, you got this advice that, uh, not to look at the beauty of something, but look at the imperfections where you could fix it. Is it hard for you to look back on your work and appreciate it?
1: Um, it's not really hard for me. So one of the problems I was having, which most people who do art will have, is when you make an art that you're really satisfied with, it's hard for you to let it go.
0: Mm, yeah.
1: So... One thing that I've done over the years, and I don't know how much I still focus on that, is when I'm building an art that I see that I'm super satisfied about, I always want to make sure I sell this particular art to people that I know. Oh, okay. So that's that's how I could get over the fact that I'm selling this piece of art. Any art, if except there's something that I made and my wife said, don't sell that or maybe my kids see it and they're like, it, don't sell that. Then I will leave it for the house. But every art that I'm making, I'm making with the intention of selling. If I love it too much and feel too connected to it, I will hope that I sell it to someone that I know, which is that it has happened, you know, it has worked so far and it's been working for me so far. So I feel more excited if piece that I don't want to do away with is someone that I know that is buying it. Yeah. There's a more at piece that way than to say, I sold a random piece to a random person in Chicago. But then sometimes those random people don't just go away as random people. They buy the art, they spend five, 10, 15 minutes getting to know you, talking to you. Mm-hmm. A lot of the times we end up becoming friends. Yeah. Like, oh, we saw you at this show. Let's know when your next show is. They will show up and it's like, oh, Remember, we bought that butterfly tree from you. So you're now connected with them. So art is connecting me with people. As much as I want to sell to people that I know, some people who will buy things that I really like, I don't want to do away with, I end up knowing them.
0: (laughs) When you're uh, painting or when you're sculpting, it's a very um, solitary and isolating feeling. How does the being able to sell the
1: art expand your community? So now with the with the presence of um internet it makes it a lot easier. So in the past we make stuff you just make the things and focus on what you're making mm-hmm. without showing it until it's done. Mm-hmm. So now with um Instagram, TikTok and Facebook you have the story. So once you put stuff together you see what you're doing. Yeah. You try to be the magician on the internet to show the process of how you're doing it. And so how that is good is the fact that when you show something today, you feel obligated to show an improvement of the version of what you've shown today. Yeah. So that also is also serving as a way of keeping you in check. So if you've showed them how you started, you don't want to show them after a week that you're still in that one Process. Yeah. If you want to photograph it again, you want to do some things to it. So that keeps you going. Mm-hmm. At least for me, it does. And I, when I scroll through people's pages and I see like how they started stuff, sometimes it's a time slap. Oh, you want to sit and see the whole thing. But if they get somewhere and say, wait for part two, you can easily just skip that and say, maybe they don't have it. But in most cases, you will see that it shows you how they start and how they finish. Oh, okay. So there's always some kind of accountability when you start to put your stuff online. You want to keep that sequence going. So that helps to keep all the pieces together and keep you (laughs) in check with whatever you're building, yeah. If you, so as an
0: artist, when you like that process of being able to show people your work, would that have helped you in school when you're going from 20 to 80 percent to give you that 40% for your
1: professors? Yeah, it would have, it would have helped a lot, but a lot of the times we don't have that time.
0: Because
1: mm-hmm. I'm on the road a lot. Um, if I'm supposed to some days the march is Kentucky, we have to drive eight hours. We wow, have yeah. to leave a day before. Mm-hmm. So You don't want to be the guy that is always emailing your professor to say, oh, I need more time for this work. (laughs) And obviously in art school, you have to be at the critique process. Mm -hmm. It's part of the process to be at the critique. So if you're not going to be there and you're still going to come back, no one's going to wait for you. The train has to move. (laughs) One thing I try to do is to move ahead of the train so I could catch up, which, no. They want to see all the process. So like you're saying, if we had the option then to document the process while we're not there, it would have been great. But now there's Zoom and all that stuff, you could capture that. But I don't mm. see how a student athlete who's on the bus, you're not gonna be painting on the bus, you'll be reading. Yeah. So, <laughs> you're always gonna be behind if, you, if you're into sports. Yeah. You're gonna be behind somehow.
0: How do you uh, stay ahead?
1: You mean right now or then? Uh, then and now. Well, then I came with the cheat mode because I did mostly painting then. I came with the cheat mode of using the hair dryer to dry the painting so I could do more on it while it's still wet. And hopefully when I feel like I'm done, I dry it up and then turn it in the following day or it will be ready to turn in in two days. That's how I was able to stay ahead sometimes, not all the time. (laughs) I was able to do that to stay ahead now the way i'm able to stay ahead with things is once i think of making stuff so my process of my work is i don't sketch so that's the hardest thing and when you meet people and they say we want you to build these for an upcoming artist you always want to have reference to show them and some people wants to buy stuff they're not you're not just dealing with one person you're dealing with a committee of people then oh, yeah The first question they will ask is, does he have any kind of sketch for this proposal that he's given? Now, it's a problem for me because if you make me sketch, I won't give you the best. Because I'm moving, I'm trying to make metal look as fluent and nice. If I draw it, it won't necessarily look like that. Mm -hmm. So the sketching process is hard for me. The way I work is when I'm putting metal together and I'm welding and I'm going to look for a piece over there. I see something that looks like a bicycle and I get that little idea of wanting to make a bicycle. I will pause on what I'm doing, pick that piece, starts to put that together. That's my sketch, I set that to the side. The good thing is I could get a lot of things done at once. The bad part is I get distracted easily. Mm So, but so far it's been working for me because I don't really sketch. And it's hard to convince people that you don't sketch. But over time, people are getting to accept the fact that he said he doesn't sketch. This is what you can look at. Look at his website, you know, or look yeah. at his Instagram. You can see stuff he's doing, just trust him, you know. So <laughs> we're using the trust business now. So <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's, it's been working. It's been working that way without me having to do all the sketches. It helps me to stay ahead when I build all these things, because in between going to shows, to sell stuff in shows, we also have the gallery exhibitions. Mm-hmm. We have the competitions yeah. that you go to. I've run, into, um, I've run into a position whereby I show this through the photograph and sent it in in the hopes that they will accept it. And during the wait process, I showed it at the show and someone buys it. <laughs> yeah. So now I have to recreate this almost as the same if I get accepted to that show. I've had that happen multiple times. <laughs> I'll show something that is supposed to be accepted for a show and I haven't heard back from them when I'm at an art show and someone, oh yeah, I like that rooster. Oh yeah, it's up for sale. Everything here is up yeah. for sale. Yeah, I take the cash, they take the piece. A day later on, I get an email saying, oh, congratulations, you've been accepted to this exhibition. They give me a week, a week's time to deliver the piece. Oh, I'll go back in the shop and (laughs) start building a new one. And you find me going back to the photograph of that to make sure I try to recreate it. Oh, yeah. The one time they accepted one of my roosters to a show, I sold it, and then I realized what I sent in the photograph I didn't have that. So I went to build oh. a new one. When I started building it, I was thinking, I'm just going to build a rooster. And along the line, I saw a different material that I have never used before. I was like, oh, I wonder how that material would look on the tail. So I completely forgot the fact that I was supposed to build it <laughs> to a particular specification. Yeah. I use this new material and I really like it. And when I was done, I was like, oh, no, that's not what the one in the photograph looked like. So when I went to, actually, it was here in South Bend, one of those studios, I think it was Fire, Fire Something Studio, Mm -hmm. um, downtown South Bend. I took it over there and thankfully the people weren't sitting there to like, Look at everything. They just said, oh yeah, you brought the rooster. I was like, yeah, I put it in the other room. <laughs> so I put it down and left really fast. <laughs> Before they, they look at the photograph and be like, oh wait. So I put it down and I was gone. <laughs> and that has happened, you know, multiple times. <laughs> and I'm sure I'm not the only one that's guilty of that. Um, what is the hardest
0: uh, bridge or gap between making art
1: and selling art? Oh yeah, now the hardest bridge between making and selling. Um, how to value your work. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, this is what I found out that a lot of um, upcoming artists have struggled with. You have to have a determination to say, do I want to be broke or do I want to just stick with this or just take it as is? For me, what I did was, I've always told myself, I like nice things. I want to make money. I've put my time to make this. Here's how much I'm valuing it. And I'm going with the mindset that if you don't buy it, somebody else will. Mm -hmm. So whatever I decide I want to sell it, If you come with a big baguette or you are able to convince me, over me trying to convince you to pay what I'm asking, then I will be ready to take that little cut. Say I'm saying, oh, it's going to go for $50 and you offer to give me $40. I'm going to ask myself, is $10 going to make a huge difference? Nine out of ten times I'll probably say no. I say, hey, don't tell anyone I sold it for $10, yeah. because <laughs> it's price 50. And you know? I'll mm-hmm. say, so the bridges, it seems like it's small, but it's really wide. Because you see a lot of artists, they've put all this time to make this work mm-hmm. and they don't know how to value it. And some, if they do value it, they value it way too high based on what the market is asking now i'm not going to look at any art and say Nah, that's way too expensive to the artist i have to be in my case i have to be realistic with where i'm showing it the type of people that go there oh ah, yeah if i have a 1000 dollar piece my piece will always range if it ranges between 1000 to 1500 for example there's cities that I will go to. I'll leave it at fifteen hundred. There's cities that I will go to. I'll leave it at thirteen hundred. There's cities that I'm willing to take a thousand to. So, but if I value it between a thousand to fifteen, it's gonna stay within that range. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not gonna show stuff that I don't think in this city I will get that kind of traffic. I will focus on taking stuff that you know. There's some shows you want to go to. You like, oh yeah this show would be great for the 40 and $50. It's mostly a craft. You want to keep it within that range. You don't want to take a all $5,000 stuff. To, it's like taking a knife to a gunfight. You don't yeah. want to take the all $5,000 big stuff to a place that's mostly craft. Most people come for craft. Yeah. So not that they can't afford it, they're just not ready for it at that time. The sticker shock but, from seeing
0: all these other $40 crafts exactly. and then seeing
1: a $1,500 piece. And then no one wants to go in there because there's like, you know, so I try to have all ranges of stuff. And I try to show as many varieties of my stuff that I can when I go to a show. So when you come in, you know, oh yeah, he's got stuff for everyone. So you're not like, eh, nah, he's too big for me. So I put everything that you can see from the 20s to the 50s to the thousands, yeah. And then um,
0: when these art shows happen, it obviously gives you a lot more range for people to see your work. But a lot of the times the customer base comes in with this idea of bargain hunting or trying to haggle prices. Does that hurt an artist at that?
1: Yes, it does, depending on what stage you are in the business. Uh, Like for me, for example, when I first started going to shows, I was always focused on the sales that I'll make on each show. That's how I rate how successful my day is. But over time I came to term that that's not what it's about. When I first started, it was good because I was selling every single show, at least the first five to nine shows that I went to, I came home with enough money that I put into the show. Mm-hmm. But then I started going to shows that I wasn't selling. But at the time, I started realizing that a lot of some of my stuff are really expensive. You just can't make that decision right there. Mm, And over time, I started to see that sometimes all you have to do is show your stuff. You show it today. They cannot make that decision today. They call you in a week's time. They call you in a month's time. They call you in six months' time. And I asked for that stuff they saw last summer. Mm -hmm. So for me, that's how it works for me. So a lot of the shows that I go to, I go with like a not a nonchalant attitude, but I go knowing fully that probably they won't dip their hands in their pocket to buy anything here today. Yeah. But I'm hopeful. Mm -hmm. So, and it, it has worked for me like that. Cause you know, you go to a lot of shows that, when it's time to tear down, you see a lot of artists, they're not happy because they didn't make any sale. Now, depending on what they're selling, if you have stuff from $10 to $60, oh yeah, you will be sad because that's not a lot of money for some, for most people who mm-hmm. go to art shows. But if you have all the you know big box stuff, then you know you're just out here trying to put your name out. Yeah, okay. It has always worked for me. Uh, I'll say nine out of the 10 shows that are, Any show that I'll go to, I always make a sale or I make a connection. So a lot of the times you're just there for the connection. While you're showing your stuff, interacting with people, you get ideas. Some would not buy, but they will sell you ideas that will lead to the next big sale Mm -hmm. or introduce you to people or tell you places you should be. So it's always a good mix when you go out to shows.
0: And then I'll end on, what do you think the community could do to support artists, especially up and coming artists?
1: One of the things the communities can do to support artists, which um, a lot of the communities around here are doing it now, is to be focusing on local artists. Um, They tend to, they have been doing that more than what it was um, five years ago. Like right now we have um, Epic Trail coming down to Elkhart County. So they reach out to all the sculptors through colleges and just around town, word of mouth as well. Cause you know, artists, they know themselves. We know ourselves. Yeah, And they're gonna have almost 20 some sculptures all around Elkhart County, Middlebury, Goshen, Napanee and all those places. Uh, The city of Napanee has been doing that too. Uh, I've been a part of that for almost three and a half years now. Um, Warsaw is also doing that. They're reaching out to artists to bring stuff in. Uh, right before the pandemic, they reached out to, uh, I think John Stewart's so or that's his name. He made all this big life-size stuff all over the place. You know, a lot of the local artists weren't quite happy about that, but now they've like, yeah, we're focusing on the local artists. Um, South Bend Museum. They had their 75th anniversary exhibition. It's open right now. Yeah. It's going to be open till the end of May. They reached out to the local artists. Not only that, they made it free for the local artists to, to sign on. So that's what the community have been doing. And hopefully more companies will get involved and more businesses will get involved and it will be the big voila! <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Well, thank you so much for
0: your time. Uh, thank you for listening to a thousand words. I'd like to thank our guest Sunday Maraja for his, their, his time, effort, and insight. This episode was recorded at Wolf Den Studios in South Bend. Our audio engineer is Dustin Tversky. We hope you enjoyed this journey of inspiration, imagination, and exploration. I'm Ronnie Das, reminding you to have fun, be creative, and enjoy a wonderful day.